Good morning. Welcome to the morning walk. Still me, John Grant. It is a very brisk, suddenly uh, chilly morning where I'm at. Uh, birds are chirping. The sky is blue. Everything is very green. It's full-on springtime uh, here in Georgia. Full-on springtime also means full-on time for pollen. Luckily, I am not a severe sufferer of allergies. However, there is yellow dust on everything. Um, and I know those who have a hard time with pollen allergies. Um, certainly, this is a rough time of year for them. Maybe there's a side effect benefit of being quarantined inside for coronaviruses that were also quarantined inside for the most part from uh, pollen season here in Georgia but you know trying to find very very small bright spots in an otherwise crazy situation so I thought I would pick up on my story of JRG fitness where we left off we had talked about how we had just found So we found our investment partners. Uh, they owned five fitness locations in Indiana. We discovered them because they were actually trying to sell their fitness locations and we were considering them as part of our purchase. When they heard what we were up to, they changed their perspective a bit and decided that maybe instead of selling their locations what they would do is they would sell their locations into our new company as, as part of uh, making a multi-million dollar investment and in helping us uh, formula uh, form kind of a new um, organization of gyms the story of this group is really pretty fascinating, probably worth its own segment. Um, the group is based out of West Virginia. Uh, the founder, a guy named Bill, uh, Bill made his money when he was younger in coal mines power, uh, which is obviously related. Um, he was very smart about investing his money and reinvesting his money and then diversifying his portfolio. And so by the time that I encountered him and his group as part of uh, this experience with JRG Fitness, they had portfolio that I believe was over a billion dollars. Uh, they had several um, mutual funds. They had resorts. They had uh, real estate. They still had coal. They had uh, just a lot. You know, 
going on. Obviously, a billion-dollar portfolio is nothing to sneeze at, and you know they were pretty well entrenched in a number of ways. And as I had mentioned before, the fitness locations uh, were originally set up as a business essentially for Bill's children to run and to own and to kind of have, you know, as a, at the time, I almost thought of it as kind of an allowance, right? When you have that kind of money, the idea of allowances change. Now, his children were full-grown, had families of their own, so we're not talking about an allowance for a five-year-old. We're talking about, you know, an income source for an adult child. Um, and they were decently maintained, uh, the locations in Indiana. Um, there was a, a general manager connecting them all. Um, they were out just outside of Indianapolis. And there wasn't anything really um, unique about them uh, other than it seemed clear that Bill's ownership group ran them essentially according to the franchise playbook. Uh, they didn't they didn't have lo- local level decision making um, that had shaped the business model. Uh, There wasn't really any appreciable personal training or supplement sales or um, massage beds or tanning. It was a pretty straightforward setup, very much uh, kind of, you know, by the book, cookie cutter approach, which is fine. You know, they were decently maintained, and I think what was motivating, or my understanding of what was motivating Bill to sell them at all was simply a lack of decent return. They weren't making much money. Uh, The gym business is a business where you essentially have a very fixed or you know, majority fixed cost. You have rent, you have payroll, and in this particular franchise model, payroll really is just somebody working the front desk. Um, Depending on the size, maybe some cleaning crew. And you have a fixed membership rate. And at the time, membership rate was $34.95, so it's designed at a price point that is supposed to appeal to largest number of customers. When I went to franchisee training, one of the things that you learn about the franchise model for this brand is that their goal essentially was to be uh, the only game in town. And what they were trying to do, their primary focus was move fast enough, get enough franchises open where You were looking for a population of 13 to 15,000 
preferably within a three mile radius that didn't have a lot of other fitness options. And you then could open up a <clears throat> access controlled 24 seven facility with the standard gym equipment of treadmills, ellipticals, maybe some bikes. So plenty of cardio equipment. And then your um, workout machines. So your seated bench press, your um, seated leg press, essentially the type of machines you would see at most larger fitness centers where you just kind of sit or lean or lay or whatever, depending on the design on the machine. Look at the little instruction picture, choose your weight uh, and go. And so they were supposed to be very turnkey, very low hassle. You hire a high school kid to work the front desk or if you're an owner operator, you and your family work the front desk. You sell memberships, very much focusing on 24-7 access and the equipment and the low price. And your fixed cost, rent being the largest one, you know, returning your initial investment on equipment, which could be anywhere from 60,000 to 160,000, depending on your size and your territory. Um, and your payroll, whatever you were paying somebody up front, which usually wasn't much. And then you divided that by your membership rate of $34.95, and you could come to a certain number of members you needed to break even. So in this case, a certain number of members. Typically, for a medium-sized uh, gym of this brand, would be around 250 to 300 members. So your first 250 to 300 members, uh, essentially, you're not making money. You are just working towards covering costs. However, because the costs are mostly fixed, with the exception of occasional repairs and whatever marketing you're going to spend, um, once you've covered that cost, once you've reached, let's say, a break-even of 300 members, then you are essentially in pure profit past that point, right? 400 members means the first 300 members cover your expenses. The remaining 100 members essentially are where your net revenue is going to come from. That was the by-the-book play in its basic form. Now, the more advanced locations and certainly um, the more successful locations like the ones that you know Greg owned in Atlanta did not strictly rely upon the membership fees as the only source of revenue so you could supplement that you could do personal training and in personal training you typically create a certain um, dollar per hour mark once again depending upon the market uh, you hire well hire is a loose term you get some independent contractors to come in you agree to a rate with them 
and then they are essentially sharks in the water. They go and try and convince members at your gym to um, purchase personal training sessions with them and get that one-on-one experience uh, with them. If you want to do it even better than that, then what you do is you create a system where every new member gets what we would call uh, kind of an, an intro assessment. But essentially you set up every new member to have a free short session with a personal trainer so that they can see the benefit of personal training, they can get to know that trainer and hopefully um, purchase you know, a package of personal training sessions, eight sessions over the course of eight weeks or something similar. Um, you also can supplement in that model by having things like protein drinks or vending machines or uh, ever popular uh, tanning booth, self-tanning uh, booths where you can charge a slightly higher membership rate and maybe tack on $10 a month for access to the tanning booth. Um, there's lots of little ways that you can generate some additional revenue. Greg and his locations in Atlanta had done an exceptional job of focusing on building that additional revenue. So not only have his gyms were there a large number of members, and so a lot of revenue coming off of the additional memberships past break-even, but also multiple channels of personal training revenue, tanning revenue, some vending revenue, etc. Um, our overall kind of concept for expanding from small number of locations to the original idea of 20 or so locations in the southeast was that we feel felt like a lot of our um, fellow franchise owners and operators were not maximizing their additional revenue streams. So as an example, Bill's group of gyms in Indiana had basic membership costs uh, coming in, but not a lot else. And so the thought was, let's establish those new revenue channels Let's provide training and best practices to um, the staff at these locations and give them goals and incentives to hit certain marks in revenue. Um, and if we could then just maintain, not even grow, but if, even if we just maintained in a worst case scenario, the existing membership base, but we added to that existing membership base another couple of revenue streams, it wouldn't take much for uh, all the locations to create additional profit, which would start to pay back the investment of owning them in the first place. We also felt like if we could cluster them geographically, and as I said, our original intent 
was to keep the entire portfolio uh, pretty close, ideally within you know one or two states. Then perhaps we also could get some scale and economy out of uh, marketing efforts. So instead of having to have a marketing budget that only impacted one location at, at a time, uh, we could start to pool that money and then do things like radio advertisements or uh, large-scale media purchases in an area that would drive additional traffic and essentially have a higher return on the marketing investment dollar. Why weren't all of the owners, and in particular, why weren't owners like Bill, who clearly has an entire organization that's doing very well financially, uh, taking advantage of all of these things? Well, we felt like there were a couple reasons. One, the relationship between the franchisees and the franchisor, uh, in many cases, uh, was not one of explicit trust. And there was a feeling that the franchisor uh, was trying to provide additional things like <coughs> vendors for protein supplements or um, a system called Fitness on Demand, which essentially was a uh, self-serve class video uh, program uh, that the franchisor was attempting to sell those things simply so that they got a cut of uh, the sale. And that created some acrimony um, in the relationship between the franchisor and some of the franchisees. It's also very challenging, as I came to learn, as a franchisor, you can require certain things to be part of uh, the franchise model. However, the franchise contract is essentially 10 years. And so for franchisees who signed on, say, five years ago, if there was not sufficient language in the contract that they signed that provided the franchise or the option to alter the business model or require additional investment, then it was difficult to enforce certain standards uh, across the company until those franchise licenses came up for renewal, in which case you had a chance to say, well, if you're going to continue to be a franchisee, then here's the new expectations, the new terms. So part of the reason that there wasn't more consistency across the brand was that there was a wide variety of contract terms uh, in place, some of which were more recent and had lots of language. And, restrictions and responsibilities that allowed for uh, more advanced revenue streams to be built within the model. Uh, older ones, uh, which really didn't because 
the overall approach in the early days of the franchise was make it inexpensive, make it simple, and just sell the crap out of it. Just get as many licenses sold as possible, cover as much territory as possible, and because at the time there was a feeling that there was a first mover advantage with this new 24-7 model, and as I said earlier, uh, their real goal was find markets, find cities, find towns where there wasn't competition and simply be the first ones to move in and then hope that that scared off uh, other competition from investing in the same market. The, as a result, some of the owners who we were negotiating with, um, including Bill's group, found that the original promise or sales pitch of a turnkey franchise where you just invested and then hired somebody to work up front and then watch the money roll in didn't turn out to be true for most. And so they um, were becoming disenchanted with the overall investment. The opportunity again for us was to take what Greg had made very successful in Atlanta and expand that to more locations. So when Bill's group became a part of the conversation about potentially investing in us and supporting the creation of the overall company, one of the things that happened was um, we had to fly up to West Virginia to make a presentation and to negotiate essentially their involvement. That afternoon, because it basically was just one afternoon, but that afternoon in Virginia, or West Virginia, uh, may have been the single best education I've ever had in terms of perspectives on uh, money. <laughs> so we came into uh, Bill's offices, which for a company worth you know, more than a billion dollars with you know, an arm in New York City managing mutual funds and all these sophisticated uh, financial machinations going on, the offices themselves were pretty unassuming. It looked like something that you would see in a light industrial park. Uh, that was uh, <laughs> kind of a false impression up front, right? Uh, Bill, when I met him, I believe was already in his uh, early 80s. He was a small man, kind of soft-spoken country guy, but he had this collection of uh, old white guys who were his key advisors, his accountant, his legal guy, etc. And Bill was this kind of wizened old figure uh, at the head of a big wood conference boardroom style table um, flanked on either side by, um, you know, very... Uh, 
you know, veteran, uh, grizzled old guys, all in their suits, all, uh, you know, very focused on the numbers, all very focused on kind of the overall uh, scale and the return and the percentage points and, you know, all the things you would expect out of folks who essentially are bankers at a very high level, but just for one company. Um, the, the feeling sitting in that room after we were greeted by <laughs> Bill's uh, sweet secretary, uh, who also herself was uh, uh, an older lady, but clearly somebody you could tell who was just devoted to um, Bill and had probably been, you know, his assistant for ever. Um, the experience at first, as I was young and cocky, was, hey, these are some country guys. Uh, they're going to be really impressed with what we've come up with, right? Because we're from the big city. We're from Atlanta. We've got, you know, we've been scouring the countryside. We've got private equity brokers. Like, we're going to be a big deal. Um, very quickly, uh, that notion was dashed. <laughs> uh, Bill is no joke. And though, and you would think, as someone who uh, spent most of his life in the South, you would think I would know better than to let a country accent uh, persuade me too far in terms of how sharp someone was mentally. But Bill very quickly demonstrated that he has a gift for cutting through the bullshit and hearing the things that are important and that he would ask questions that there was no hiding from, he wanted to say. And the one question I remember that he asked me because I at the time was going to be in charge of operations for this newly forming company. Um, as he said, you know, this franchisor has a couple thousand locations. Uh, They're making a bunch of money. They have a plan. They have a marketing strategy. They have this model that they built. What makes you think that you can do better? And luckily, it was a question I had thought about quite a bit leading into that conversation. If the end result of this whole effort was simply to purchase a bunch of locations and continue to run them uh, exactly by the vanilla playbook from the franchise or it wasn't worth doing. And so my response to Bill, or at least my recollection of it, which is probably colored by now being a decade or so removed, was that our advantage would be operational scale. All right, the franchise was based around the idea of owner-operators who would have one to maybe three locations. There were very, very few that had any more than that. As a matter of fact, at the time, I believe the largest single franchisee in the United States only had eight locations. And so our thought was that 
by gathering together a large number of locations, we would be able to scale certain resources, such as operational expertise, marketing strategy, personal training strategy and training. Um, essentially, we would be able to take what Greg had made very successful for him in Atlanta and simply copy that or distribute that across this group uh, of fitness centers. And it wasn't until much later that I had a chance, and much later, not even that day, but you know, months and months later, that I had a chance to have a quick one-on-one -on -one conversation with Bill, and Bill told me that well, he was impressed with my kind of concept or my uh, vision for being a young guy. Uh, he didn't know if I was going to be able to pull it off, <laughs> which turns out was a good instinct on his part. Um, but that he liked that I had a clear answer and I clearly had thought about it. And, you know, there was a strategy that we were going to try and execute. And the lesson that I learned that day about perspectives of money really came next. So Greg and I had gone up to have this negotiation and to present essentially our business plan. Uh, but then our private equity brokers were there to work the deal. And after Greg and I said our piece, we were essentially kicked out of the room and told to go away for a couple of hours. Uh, because uh, they were going to talk money. And so they, um, Greg and I went and drove around and actually visited a, a local airfield. Uh, Greg was an Air Force fighter pilot, great lover of planes, and so we just found a local airstrip. Uh, literally on the side of a mountain, which for me was kind of intimidating. Greg found it pretty amusing, the idea that you were going to land on an airstrip that already was several thousand feet in the air, and that if you missed, uh, you would simply face plant into the side of the mountain, and that it could be a shorter runway. Uh, one, because there was no mountain left to make it a longer runway, uh, but also because, hey, in the worst case scenario, you just fall off the side of the mountain and then you pick up wind speed or pick up airspeed as you were falling and then you could pull out. All of these things terrified me. Uh, but Greg thought they were amusing. So we went and spent some time checking out the airfield. And after a few hours, we headed back, waited in the lobby, and were eventually called back into the room. And what Bill proposed at that point uh, was something that I never would have thought of in a million years. When you have over a billion dollars, um, I've learned from Bill and from experiences since uh, a couple things become true. One, investing a couple million is barely worth it unless you can get a substantial return on your investment uh, or there is incredibly low risk 
because in order to make a billion dollars into a billion and a half, um, you have to be putting that money to work. It has to be earning a high percentage. It has to be uh, invested in things where you're going to get a high payout in order to keep building that portfolio at that size. And so we were only asking for a couple of million dollars and we were already in a business that because of the business structure itself was either low margin or no margin and there were very few examples of locations within this brand that had um, successfully executed uh, a high profit business. Greg uh, was probably one of the best examples in the entire uh, brand. Um, add on top of that that Bill's company was a franchisee of the brand and they hadn't been able to do it. And as most do, right, you think fairly highly of yourself and your team generally, and so his team wasn't able to pull it off, and so he's a little doubtful. But Bill's thought was, why don't we just buy the brand? Forget buying locations. What if we bought the franchise itself? <laughs> and I remember when that first was said, my initial impression was, <laughs> well, we could never afford that. Hadn't even thought about it. That was way too much money. You're talking, I don't know what, 100 million, 150 million, 200 million, something in that range. But then I had to stop and say, well, it's my perspective. It's not the perspective of an 80-year-old West Virginian who has made a billion dollars plus by taking big risks. And the fact that he suggested it at all, in hindsight, I think was you know, two things. One, I think he was testing to see what kind of ambition Greg and I had if we would be kind of easily dazzled by the idea of creating a much, much bigger deal and we would lose our focus. And so I don't know that Bill necessarily wanted us to say no or wanted us to say yes, but I do think Bill, having gotten to know him a little bit, I do think Bill was smart to ask the question because he wanted to see how much discipline, you know, Greg and I had. Um, but then I think he was genuinely curious to see whether or not we had considered it, if that was a play that we had thought through. If my idea of, you know, operating at scale was something that could be applied to a much larger deal, right, and thus potentially more worth it uh, for Bill to invest heavily in. And honestly, I don't remember that Greg and I responded at all. I think it was kind of a talk out loud moment from Bill and his team. Uh, and they were waiting to see whether or not Greg and I took the bait. Uh, there might have been a, a brief discussion, uh, but ultimately it wouldn't have been a good idea, at least within our business model at the time, because... Um, the things that you can do when you're a single ownership group, even over a franchise license, uh, 
provide you much more control than when you're a franchisor. As a franchisor, um, you know, one, there's a lot of legal uh, overhead and requirements and things you have to work through that can make it challenging if it's not navigated terribly well. Um, you also would inherit all of the existing problems that they had. We would inherit all of the old contracts. We would inherit all of the territories. We would inherit um, you know, most of the existing staff without really having a network of you know, people of our own that we could have called in quickly to staff up that kind of organization. And so uh, ultimately that concept of buying the brand itself kind of came and went fairly quickly. But I remember it to this day. I, I remember it in that, um, you know, I think a lot of people, and certainly I, uh, before this experience, would assume that someone who has a lot of financial resources um, finds low priority on small amounts of money, right? That it would be easy to get them to agree to 50 grand or it would be easy to get them to agree to, you know, a hundred grand or even a million dollars. Um, in fact, the opposite is actually true because a uh, million dollars is not worth the transaction cost to them. A hundred million dollars is what they get up in the morning for. Quarter of a million dollars uh, or, I'm sorry, $200 million, $250 million. Those are deals that they're worth them putting their resources into and really vetting out and potentially going in, uh, you know, with all their cards. If you are too small, then uh, they don't even have reason to play. And ultimately, the experience I had with Bill and his team as investors in our business uh, was more valuable than my MBA. It was more valuable than probably any other business education I had ever received up until that point or could receive up until that point. Uh, and ultimately we got a deal done. But remember what I said about too small a deal makes it not worth playing because ultimately our desire to create a big enough deal in hindsight uh, was probably ultimately the undoing uh, of JRG Fitness before we had even gotten started. So we'll leave it there. I'll pick up on that, how we ended up with the final uh, portfolio, which we did get a deal done on, uh, and tell you a little bit about the experience of actually operating that deal and what, uh, what we learned from that. Um, sometime soon. In the meantime, thanks for the extra time today. Stay happy, stay healthy, and let's all learn from Bill. If you're going to be in business, stay profitable.